following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 is page number 842. Somebody left me a feel gravity bar up here, a cliff bar. So if we need that for later, I'll pull it out. When the slides didn't work earlier, it reminded me of a time, very few of you will be around to remember this, but it reminded me of a time back in like 2009, 2010, something like that. Jordan uh, left somewhere for vacation, and he had left all the slides and everything ready for us, or so he said. Uh, so we get there that morning, and I don't know exactly where the, the problem occurred, but at some point between the time that the musicians were warming up and we actually got ready to start the service, I think Wes was leading the uh, worship that day for Jordan, the wrong slides got loaded for the songs. And so here Wes comes up, and he's like, everybody stand, we're going to sing Jesus, thank you, and like Amazing Grace words are up there. And nobody could remember any of the right words at this point, and they couldn't find the right slides, and so here's Wes up there trying to, I think, manage that and uh, get us through it, and it was terrible. It was so funny afterwards, not during the time. I felt bad for Wes, and I'm like, well, what do you do? So we blame Jordan for that to this day. Mark 7, we're going to read the first 23 verses, and then we're going to bow our heads in prayer together. If you will, please look at verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that, by going into him, can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Can you bow your heads with me for just a moment? As we 
get ready to pray together, I just want to ask you for a moment here just to go before God and ask him to speak to your heart today from this text. Ask him to open your heart and your mind to see the things that Mark has written for us. We take just a moment here in silence and do that. Father, we come together here corporately now to open up your word and understand it. We want to see you, we want to understand you, we want to know you, your word, so we can obey your word and bring you honor and glory in all of our life. And this passage that we're in today, Lord, speaks to all of those desires at their heart level. And so, Lord, today we ask, as we do just about every Sunday, that your Spirit will open the eyes of our hearts to see. Give us ears to hear, convict us, teach us, encourage us this morning from your Word. Help me to make it clear, to, to, to be able to think through it in the way that honors what Mark is trying to do, so that as we walk out, Lord, we will be committed to you more than we were when we walked in this morning. So I pray, God, that you will make this time profitable. We desperately need you to be with us today in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes in life, um, we think negatively of people. Sometimes they deserve that. Other times they don't. Uh, I had an opportunity this week to see someone who definitely deserved to be thought negatively of. It was Thursday night, and let me just say in advance of this story, these things actually do happen to me, okay? It was Thursday night. I was at Nathaniel's football practice, which is held at Princess Anne Elementary School on Seaboard Road. There's like <clears throat> four different football teams and a girls softball team that all use the fields back behind Princess Anne Elementary for various things. So I don't know which team this person was associated with, but there was uh, parking lots full of cars. There's people going all over the place, kids everywhere. I've been sitting in the car. I've been making a few phone calls, trying to talk to some people uh, through the, the hour, hour and a half I'm sitting there. And finally was done with all that. was finally going to just sit back and relax for the last 15, 20, 30 minutes of practice and listen to a podcast and just, just chill out. It's kind of nice sometimes to do that. So I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm looking down at my phone. I'm trying to find the podcast I'm going to listen to. And I hear someone walking up from behind me. I'm, I'm parked like this and there's a car back to my back left, it's a woman, and she's on the cell phone. And so instantly, I just look at my side view mirror, and I can see her. And she's talking to her husband or her boyfriend or somebody, and she's like, hey, need you to come over here. Uh, the car is locked. You've got the keys. I need to get in. She's got a drink in her hand as she's saying this. I'm just quick observation. But it didn't stand out. I just went back to what I was doing. And I'm sitting there for about another maybe 30 seconds, maybe minute, when I hear a noise that gets my attention. I hear the sound of a liquid being poured out on the pavement. And so I thought, is she, is she pouring out her drink? And I looked in the side view mirror, and her drink is now sitting on top of the car, and she is leaning against the bumper of her car like this with nothing in her hands. <laughs> and you're having the same reaction that I'm having at that moment now. Like, partial disbelief mixed with like disgust, but mainly disbelief at this moment. Like I'm sitting there going, no, no. no. And involuntarily, I just turned around and looked at her and she looks at me. 
And there's nothing in her hands. And I'm hearing the sound of water hitting pavement. And I turn back around now like, no, no, that's like embarrassed because, you know, I've seen a lot of men urinate in public. It's like a sport for men, right, to see how high they can go or how far. You know, the older you get, your prostate weakens. It's just getting into the toilet. That's all, that's all you're worried about at that point. But when you're young, it's different. I've seen a lot of guys do this in public. I have never in my life seen a woman urinate in public, much less the middle of the parking lot of Princess Anne Elementary School on Seaboard Road. But sure enough, this is what she's doing. I look away because now I'm embarrassed, right? But I, I hear it come to an end, and I look back at the side view mirror, and I see her doing this and walking away from the car. So I'm like, I'm still in disbelief at this point. I'm like, no. No, that is not what So she's gone. I get out of the car. <laughs> I just had to know. I had to know. <laughs> I get out of the car, and I walk around behind the car, and sure enough, right where she had been propped up against her bumper is now a big wet spot right behind it. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. So you think, well, did you say something to her? I may have, except that her husband, boyfriend walked up, and he's like 6'6", bald head, goatee, 350. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to leave this one alone. Nathaniel comes walking up after practice. He's like, come to him. I'm like, hey, 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 don't walk that way. <laughs> Careful. Go, go a different way. Would you agree with me at that moment that this is someone who probably, at least in this instance, deserves to be thought negatively of? Thank you. Uh, that was a very, very unusual moment, but now I want to surprise you with something. I want to talk about a group of people who are often thought negatively of that I actually would like to defend, because I don't know that they fully deserve it, at least not completely, and if you haven't guessed who I'm referring to, it's going to be the Pharisees here in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Mark is now turning our attention to a very interesting interchange between this group of people known as Pharisees. You see them mentioned here in verse 1. The Pharisees on one side, they're scribes, they've come down from Jerusalem, and you got Jesus on the other side. And they're going to have this debate about a seemingly unusual issue of washing your hands before eating. The Pharisees are calling Jesus out here because his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat in this particular meal. Jesus responds by accusing them of hypocrisy and by a misunderstanding of violating God's law. And so all the stuff that happens here in this story just kind of unfolds from that interaction. It's the kind of scene and the kind of issue that actually causes us to think negatively of the Pharisees because, let's face it, they're wrong. They're 100% wrong in this scene. In fact, if we were to expand that out and just think about the Gospels in general, pretty much every time you see the Pharisees in the Gospels, they're wrong, 100%. And so this is why we often, if not always, think negatively of them, because they're almost, as, if not always, wrong. And yet this morning, I kind of want to defend them a little bit. Um, I want to do that because... As you'll see, while, while they may be wrong in this scene and in every other scene in the New Testament, their wrongness is actually stemming from some things that are good and right. Things that you and I as believers in Jesus should give careful and serious thought to. And if we don't understand those good and right things about the Pharisees, then you can't really understand what's going on here and why they are so wrong. And so, I want to begin this morning by defending the Pharisees. How many of you have ever heard a sermon of someone defending the Pharisees? 
That's what I thought. I'm going to do that this morning to understand them a little bit better. So, so, so stick with me for a few minutes here. The Pharisees were a religious party within first century Judaism. Now, I know that's kind of weird for you to hear the term religious party because we don't think of parties like religious parties. We think of political parties. And so if you use our modern-day American context, you, you probably understand it a little bit better. In America, we're one country. We have one government. But within this one country and one government, there are all kinds of political parties. There's Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, uh, Ralph Nader. He's like his own party by himself. Uh, you've got all these various parties that all have particular ways that they view our country, things they think we should be, directions they think we should go. And so when they get power within our government, what do they do? They make decisions that take us in those directions because they have a certain belief system that says this is what America should be. And so there's all this fighting back and forth between the political parties trying to, to direct our country and direct our government. Well, in a similar way, first century Ju uh, Judaism, while being one religious system, is made up of, of multiple parties all trying to push their own particular direction on the religion as a whole. And one of those groups, groups was known as the Pharisees. They were a religious party that came into existence during the Maccabean Revolt, which is like 168 BC. We don't know the exact date, but by the time that Jesus is talking with them here in Mark 7, they've been around for almost 200 years. And I point that out just so you understand, they're not some like upstart group that's trying to make a name for itself within, within Jesus' day. No, this is an established group of people who are well-respected. You want to take a guess how many Pharisees, card-carrying, you know, they got a website login, kind of a, a membership with Pharisees there were in Jesus' day? Only about 6,000, about 1% of the population. But they made up a huge, had a huge amount of influence on the culture and were by far the dominant party within, within Judaism of that time. Their name means separated ones or holy ones, which tells you a little bit about what they were trying to do. From their inception, the Pharisees were really focused on three separate but very closely connected things. Number one, they wanted to be totally dedicated to God. Good or bad? Good. Number two, they wanted to be serious about knowing and obeying God's word. Good or bad? Good. Number three, they wanted to be sure that Judaism and the Jewish people as a whole, that Judaism was distinguishable from the pagan religions and the pagan nations around them, good or bad. These are, are separate ideas, but obviously they're all connected because if you're going to be truly dedicated to God, you want to live your life for him, well then how do you do that? You do it by knowing his word and by obeying his word. And guess what happens if you know and obey God's word? You look different. These are separate ideas, but they're, they're super connected. These Pharisees then, you see their name. They wanted to be separated ones, holy ones. Does that make sense for them? And, and I would urge you just to stop right there and to think about those points. They wanted to be dedicated to God. They're serious about knowing and obeying God's word. They want to look different from the world around them. Who in here, who is a true believer in Jesus, doesn't want those same things? I mean, if you tell me you're a believer in Jesus and yet you don't really care about living your life for him, you don't spend any time in his word, you don't know him, you, you're not trying to obey anything, you're not, your life looks no different than any unbeliever around you. If you tell me that you wanna, you're a believer but those three things aren't true, I, I would really scratch my head. I'd have a really hard time believing that you are, in fact, a true believer in Jesus if, if you don't care about those things. And so in all of these ways, guess what? I want to be a Pharisee. 
I've never said that before. First time. I want to be a Pharisee, and I want my family to be Pharisees. I want to be dedicated to God. I want my children to know and obey God's word. I want my family to look different than all the other unbelieving families on our street. We should all want these things. And so in terms of their original commitments and in terms of their desires, the Pharisees were great. They were great. In fact, one writer I was reading this week made the observation that of all the religious parties that you could choose from in Jesus' day, Jesus would probably have been closest to the Pharisees in terms of his own commitments because he himself wants to have his life dedicated for God and to know and obey God's word and to be distinguished from the people around him. That's Jesus, is it not? Perfectly. This, This is who they are. Their commitments were great. But as is often the case, it was their execution on those commitments that led them astray, led them astray. And it started out innocently enough, I'm sure. In fact, it started, I assume, the way we would have to start to pursue those same commitments. It began by asking the question, how? How can I live my life dedicated to God fully? How can I know and obey God's word in every situation? How can my life be distinguished from all the unbelievers around me? How? That's that's the question. And so for them, it was, how are we going to obey God's law, the Torah, the 613 commands of the Old Testament found in those first five books of the Old Testament? How are we going to obey the Torah? When the Torah says that I should not covet my neighbor's stuff, whether that's his house or his ox or his wife, whatever, when it says I can't do that, what exactly does that entail and how do I make it happen? Is that not a, a legit question? It should be, if you're thinking about it, honestly, because if you want to obey God's command not to covet, you got to think about it in really practical ways in terms of everyday life. How do I do that? If the Torah says, don't work on the Sabbath, well, what exactly then can and can't I do? We've talked about that one before in the past. I won't belabor it here. These aren't stupid questions. These are good, practical questions that anyone who is serious about obeying God's word would have to ask. And so, for example, to to keep bridging gaps for us here, when Paul tells us in Philippians that we're supposed to esteem one another as being better than ourselves, what does that mean in terms of what, what you do tomorrow? How are you going to actually live that out? It's the same question that they're asking, just in a different context, a different day, and with a different command. Same kinds of questions the Pharisees are asking. And so to answer those questions about how to obey the Torah, they began to compile something called the Mishnah. Okay? You got Torah, you got Mishnah. This is not pointless. Just stick with me for a minute. You've got Torah, you've got Mishnah. The Mishnah was a record of decisions and opinions as to how the Torah was to be properly interpreted and applied in respects uh, to all these questions that you might ask. So maybe to help that make more sense, if you think of the Torah as policy, the Mishnah is procedure. Okay? The policy says, don't work on the Sabbath. Okay? The procedure says, don't do these 852 things please do these 148 things. Do you understand the difference here? Torah says, do this, don't do that. Mishnah explains how to do all of that stuff. The Torah never changes. The Torah was given by God uh, to Moses on tablets of stone. It's written and recorded for Israel to see and know beyond question. But, But the Mishnah needs to be tweaked from time to time because sometimes things change, right? I mean, if one of the things in the Mishnah says, hey, listen, you don't be friends with the Babylonians. 
when the Babylonians go out of existence, you've got to update that, right? Now is don't be friends with the Romans. The, the Mishnah needs to be updated and changed and tweaked to, to, to fit the times to help them apply God's word in their various contexts throughout time. And so this Mishnah becomes the record of their decisions on how the word was supposed to be interpreted and applied. Can I just pause and ask a question now? Is any of that bad? The answer is no. None of that is bad because we too have to figure out how to interpret and apply God's word in all of our various contexts. As things change and come up, sometimes the stuff goes on and you're like, okay, we can't do this, but maybe the situation's different several years later. Now you can. You're, 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 it's the same question, same principle at work. We have to do all the same things. At first, the Mishnah was a blessing, I'm sure. They viewed the Mishnah as being a, a fence around the Torah. So think about that for a moment. It's, it's a fence around the Torah. So if you don't want to violate God's command about uh, working on the Sabbath, then what do you do? Don't violate the Mishnah. The Mishnah is going to tell you how to stay away from, from that act of disobedience. So as long as you don't do this out here, you'll never do this in here. It's like if you go up to a uh, an electrical substation in your neighborhood, right? And they got the fence around it, and there's like transformers, and things are buzzing. If you touch it, you're going to die. So what do they do? Put a fence around it. If you don't pass the fence, you're not going to die of electrocution at that moment, okay? It's just how it's going to work. You pass the fence, you're going to violate it, boom, you're dead. You're toast. All of this was how they viewed it. None of this is necessarily bad. But in time, something changed. In time, the Mishnah came to be viewed as having equal authority to the Torah because it was no longer simply their interpretation of the Torah. It became the extension of the Torah. In fact, by Jesus' day, there were rabbis who would teach the people, listen, on Mount Sinai, God gave two laws. One he wrote on stone, it's the Torah. One he communicated simply by mouth for it to be passed down the line. So that as the, the children are hearing this taught to them, they're seeing both the Torah and the Mishnah as being the authoritative, inspired word of God to be obeyed forever. Therefore, if you violate Mishnah, guess what? You violated God's word. This is the issue in Mark 7. Had all of that to say that. This is the issue in Mark 7. As you can see here in verse 2, the issue that the Pharisees have with Jesus is that his disciples are eating with hands that were, note this word, defiled. That is, unwashed. They're, they're defiled. And Mark recognizes that not all of us who are reading that will be familiar with the customs of the Jews. We won't understand all of that backstory that I just gave you there. So in verses 3 and 4, he tries to explain at least a little what's going on. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. What's that? It's the Mishnah. Okay. The, the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions, many, he says, that they observe, such as washing cups, pots, copper vessels, dining couches. He's not trying to deal with that. He just wants you to understand the situation. All of this is Mishnah. These are interpretations and applications of Torah, because in the Torah, the only people who were specifically told to wash their hands were the priests, and the priests only did it when they were in service at the temple. And the Torah required that the priests be clean, note that word, when eating food from the temple. There's no command given in the Torah that every single person in the population has to do this thing. And yet, 
the mission is requiring it of everyone. And I want to just pause here and help you think about this maybe a little bit. Why do you think that the Pharisees took that one command that was given to priests when they were on duty in the temple and expanded it to all people all the time? Well, follow this logic with me. Is God holy? Okay, if you don't get that one right, I'm like, I should get fired right now. Okay, is God holy? Yes, okay. The reason that the priest had to wash their hands is they were serving God in the temples because they're serving a holy God, right? Okay. They, they have to be clean in the service of God, ritually, ceremonially clean in his service. Well, do you serve God too? Is God any more or less holy out here than he was in the temple? Well, then wouldn't it stand to reason that if God is just as holy here and you're just as much serving him, maybe in a different capacity, sure, I get that, but that you should be clean as well? See, it's not that big of a jump logically to get to where they went. If, if all, I mean, we would say the same thing. All, all of us are ministers of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as something else, right? That's our line around here. So, so I'm no more minister than you are, so if we're all serving God all the time, shouldn't we all be doing the same things? That's, that's the logic. They're seeing this one command given to the priest, and they're expanding it out to everybody, and it's at this point now that you need to think more carefully about what it means to be clean or unclean or defiled in the way that they're using these words here, because it doesn't have to do with hygiene. So this is why, parents, you can still tell your kids to wash their hands before they eat, right? It doesn't have to do with hygiene. If I could just boil it down to its most basic idea, the issue at stake here has to do with righteousness, the, 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 the Pharisees understood that the priests, in order to serve before holy God, had to ritually, ceremonially clean themselves to, to, to present righteousness, so to speak, as they served in the temple. And so therefore, we should all do the same. If, if you eat these unclean things, it's going to defile you. It's going to make you unrighteous before God. You have to do all this other stuff. And, other hand, you need to pursue things that make you righteous. It's, it's as if righteousness was something you could apply to the skin and as if unrighteousness is something you could wash away or get rid of in some other manner. I'm simplifying this a bit, but that's the issue. And you see that here. The, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the Mishnah, according to the tradition of the elders, but, but eat with defiled hands, to which Jesus replies, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, People honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Did he answer their question? They asked why. Why don't your disciples do this? Why do they violate the Mishnah? Does Jesus answer their question? No. <laughs> he says, Isaiah prophesied about you, and you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of hypocrites because you say one thing and you do a different thing. You, you say that you honor God. You worship him with your lips, but your heart is far from him. In vain you worship God, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, he says. And now Jesus begins to show two ways in which the Pharisees had gone astray. First, he shows that despite their claims to, to know and want to obey God's word, they're actually violating God's word on purpose. 
on purpose. He, he does this by bringing up the issue of Corbin. Uh, Mark writes here, if I can turn the page, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's Torah. This is God's words. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, I'll explain that in a moment, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. That, that's Mishnah. You say, well, what's Corban? I don't, I don't really understand it. Um, I forget the term for uh, here in our modern world, but, but there's a way, like today, if you wanted to donate your billion-dollar estate to Cornerstone, right, that you're sitting on secretly that nobody knows about, and, but you don't want to move out of the house yet, you don't want to give up the money yet, you can go ahead and put it in your will. Boom. Everything I have goes to Cornerstone. But until the day I die, I get to continue to use it and enjoy it. Okay, so as soon as I'm dead, it's Cornerstones. Until then, I get to enjoy it. That's Corbin. Corbin was the ability for a, a Jewish man of means, perhaps, to dedicate his possessions, his income, his lands, his property, his, all of his stuff, to dedicate it to God, to give it to the temple, but he doesn't have to do it yet. Now, see, for now, he can still live in his house, and he can still eat from his herds, and he can still enjoy his money. And if mom and dad come along, and they're poor and destitute and sick, and they need help, and they're like, son, can you please help us? Mom, dad, I am so sorry. I would love to help you. You know that, but all of this stuff belongs to God now. I can't give it to you. It's a way of allowing a selfish person to hide behind a vow called Corbin so as not to honor this command to take care of your parents. You see what happened? They, they created a loophole. They made it themselves. They created a loophole, but they're honoring God by dedicating all their stuff. How could you possibly question that? And Jesus is like, what? are you stupid? What do you mean? God said, God commanded that you honor your father and your mother, and whoever won't do it should die. And you're going to say because of your tradition that they can like, get out of that? Really? This is what I mean when I say to you that, that they're using their interpretation of specific points of Torah to purposely violate the Torah. They're, they're, they're purposely creating loopholes and workarounds so that they don't have to do what God has commanded them to do. And Jesus says, many such things you do. It's not just this one example. He just picked this one maybe because it was on his mind. To explain to them, listen, you're not you're not honoring God at all. His second issue with how they're acting is this, that, that he clarifies the true source of both unrighteousness, righteousness, defilement, etc. Mark writes in verse 14 that now he turns to the people and he calls the people to him again and he says to them, hear me, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him that can make him unrighteous. Rather, it's the things that come out of a person. That is what defiles him. He, he's completely reorienting the way they would understand both the absorption of righteousness and unrighteousness and its source, where it comes from. 
It's not, it's not what goes in, he says, it's, it's what's coming out. And when he had entered the house, then Mark tells us, and he left the people, his disciples come up and say, uh, what? what are you talking about? Because their entire worldview has been, has been dictated by the way the Pharisees see things. They're, they're not immune to their culture. They, they've seen it through that lens for so long that as Jesus is saying these words to them, they're like, uh, you're going to explain that one again. And, and so Jesus responds to them, verse 18, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside, it cannot defile him. It cannot make him unrighteous since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled like the woman at the car. It's expelled. I didn't choose that. It just happened to me this week. Thus, Mark puts this little parenthetical comment in here. He declares all foods clean because the Jews thought that, that the foods you ate could make you unrighteous before God. And he's like, no, 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 no. This, it's not the stuff that comes from the outside in. That stuff just goes in your stomach and leaves. This is not where defilement comes from. He said, verse 20, it's what comes out of a person. That is what makes them unrighteous. Because it is from within, out of the heart of man, that come a whole bunch of stuff. He's not giving an exhaustive list of all the evil things that happen that come out of our hearts. He's just giving you a good idea of all the things that come out. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they, are defi they defile a person. Understand that what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that the outside doesn't matter. He, he's not saying that, you know, you can, you can commit adultery all you want. That's not what defiles you. He's not just, you know, making the external unimportant. He's just simply helping you understand the source of all the external stuff. The, the adultery didn't start the moment you got in bed. It started in the heart. That's where that came from. The, the, the murder doesn't come the moment you pull the trigger. That, that's from within. The envy doesn't come the moment you're at Target and you see that thing that somebody else has and you want it so much. It's not about the thing. It's about your heart. The, the, he's not saying that the outside doesn't matter. He's simply showing you that the source of your problems is not all the outside stuff. And just think about those two points with me for a moment. Because the Pharisees have done what so many of us as Christians have done as well. See, in attempting to honor and obey God's word, they had actually dishonored and disobeyed it. They claimed that they're going to try to do one thing, but they ended up in another place. And so they became so focused on, on minutia that they began to ignore the big picture of what God wanted from them in the first place. They think they're going to honor God by looking at how many steps you walk on the Sabbath and whether or not you wash your hands the right way before you eat and all this other stuff. What vessels have to be clean and which ones can be let go till the morning? I mean, they had lists about everything. They became so focused on all that minutia, they left behind what God had actually said. And what's interesting to me there is you have a group of people that have a very high view of Scripture, very high view. You won't find a group of people in the, in the scriptures who have a higher view of scripture than the Pharisees. But they also have a really high view of man. And somehow those two things come together to cause a really low view of God. 
It's really interesting if you think about it. High view of scripture, high view of man, equals low view of God. But that's exactly what happens here. They, they felt that they could somehow interpret God's word however they wanted to justify what they really wanted, which in this case was power, reputation, etc. Many of us are no different. We, we speak a good game about having a high view of, of God's word, and, and maybe we do at some level, but I, I fear that many of us end up taking God's word and applying it and interpreting it in the ways we want to make it say what we really want to do. And that becomes a problem. Secondly, in attempting to pursue their own righteousness, what actually happens is that they reveal their own unrighteousness in the process. Think about this little saying. Righteousness doesn't absorb in, it leaks out. Or you could say it kind of the other way. Unrighteousness doesn't absorb in either. It also leaks out. That's what Jesus is saying in a nutshell here, that, that the things that are ultimately of importance in terms of how we're living our life to be dedicated to God, to know and obey his word, and to be distinguished from the, the people around us, it is not primarily governed by the external, but by the internal. You know that, right? We, we know that. But, but understand that this is why so many things that we see in the scriptures are what they are. I was just thinking about this this week. I mean, Think about Jesus when, when he says in Matthew 5, I think it is, that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Okay, He says, I didn't come to abolish I mean, because we want Jesus to abolish it, right? We want to be done. We don't want to be under the law, so why don't we just like throw this thing out and start over? And Jesus is like, no, I didn't come to abolish it. Every jot, every iota, it's all going to be fulfilled. I'm going to fulfill it. How is he able to fulfill it? You realize it's because he's righteous inside out, right? Jesus isn't sinless because he keeps the law. He keeps the law because he's sinless. His internal righteousness is the thing that makes him sinless. It makes him perfect, not the other way around. Think about our salvation. We, we say over and over again with the New Testament writers that it, salvation can never be made or, or, or be accomplished by works alone, by the things we do. We can do good things all day long, avoid doing bad things all day long, and God couldn't care less. Because when he looks at us, he's looking at our hearts. Have our hearts really changed? Is there anything different on the inside? And the reality is we can't even change our hearts. That's why in the gospel, we're not, our hearts are not necessarily changed. They are washed in the blood, sinless blood of Jesus, the righteous one. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see all that sin and wickedness and evil. He sees the perfect holiness and righteousness of his son, and we are forgiven in the son. Jesus paid for all of those things, and there is nothing more that we can do for that. Our, our salvation isn't based on the externals. The externals show the internal change. That's at least what should be happening. Even think about sanctification, that, that our process of becoming more and more like Jesus isn't primarily about the, the hands, but rather about the heart. All the time, all the time, we as Christians sit around and we go like, wow, how do we stop sinning? How do we stop doing this and start doing that? How do we, how do we get victory over this and, 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 and be free from the bondage of that? And what is our initial response? Almost always, it's like, well, I need to make a list of the seven things I need to do. I need to, to throw this away, and I need to put a lock on that, and I need to get free. And like, 
There's a place for all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. But you will never, ever, ever get victory over sin by externals. Because ultimately what you need is not just a change of externals. You need a heart transformation. As Paul says in Romans 12, listen, stop being conformed, shaped by the things of this world. You need to be, what word? Transformed. You need to have the whole heart changed. This, this transformation has to occur from the inside out. And it's just a reminder to us that the problem that we face, the greatest struggle we face, isn't all this outside external stuff. It's the internal issues, pursuing righteousness and change through the transformation that Jesus alone can bring to our hearts through the gospel. The, the, the Pharisees have walked away from all of that. And this is why Jesus has so many fights with them. It's not because they, they've got bad commitments. Actually, their commitments are great. They want to be devoted to God and want to know and obey his word and want to be different than the people around them. Yay! Applaud them for that. But they had taken all of those commitments and applied them completely wrongly, wrong by, by pursuing it the way they did. So, what about us? Um, I'll start with the obvious, right? <laughs> I, I've, I've spent all week thinking about this, all week long. I hope this comes out the way I intend it to. There is probably in this room, I would imagine, a few people Maybe I'd be shocked how many, but I imagine it's just a few who struggle with the same view that the Pharisees have here. In other words, you, you, you have taken your own interpretation and application, application of Scripture and you've made it the basis of judging both yourself and others. Okay? Well, because I do this and not that, I'm better than that guy over there who does this and not that. You know, like that kind of thing. There, there are probably some of us in here, many of us in this room probably, if based on what I know of the, the makeup of the people sitting in here, for the ones of you I know, you grew up in churches like that, where righteousness and unrighteousness is judged purely on the externals. If you are still of that mindset, can I just say to you today, stop it. <laughs> it it's wrong. Jesus himself takes issue with this. It is so easy to gravitate to those external things, to see them as the end-all means of pursuing righteousness, of avoiding unrighteousness. And Jesus would say to you, it's not about those things, it's ultimately about the heart. So you can pursue all the right stuff, you can avoid all the right stuff, and your heart can still be far away from God, just like the Pharisees. You, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far, far removed, he says to them. If, if that's you in here today, please repent of that. Stop judging both yourself and others based on those means. I get that might be your background. That doesn't make it right. But I'll be honest with you. As I thought about our church and the people I know in it, I don't think that's where the majority of us are struggling. I, again, I could be wrong. My suspicion is that maybe because of our backgrounds, there are far more people in this room who have like kind of swung to the far other end of the spectrum. And like they're at Torah only. I haven't killed anybody today. I'm 
awesome. You know, like that kind of like mentality. And I'm like, um, there's got to be like some middle point here between uh, living a life of legalism that, that pursues rules and externals as the source of righteousness and unrighteousness and just not caring about it at all. And I'm not accusing, I'm not, I'm not trying, I'm, I'm just simply saying, folks, that as believers in Jesus who want to live lives dedicated to God, who say they want to know and obey the scriptures and who want their lives to be distinguished from the people around them, you got to give some serious thought to how your life should be different. Okay, the, the, the Pharisees may have built too many fences. I'm afraid we've torn too many down. When was the last time that you or you and your spouse or you and your family had any conversation at all about what kinds of entertainment are right and not right for you as a family? When was the last time that a, a sex scene comes in a movie or a television show and you're like, this isn't honoring to God? When was the last time that you thought about a possession that you wanted to buy, that you're placing all of your happiness in, and you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't need this thing. What, what, am, what am I doing? I, I, I don't fear that for the majority of us in this room, our danger is that we've built too many fences and we, we're safe inside them and we want to shoot at everyone who's not in our fence. I'm afraid we're on the other end of the spectrum. And so, whatever it's worth, the little capital I have built up in my seven years here, I wanted to challenge us this morning, maybe we need to think about that again. That each and every person in this room, each and every couple, each and every family, needs to spend some time thinking in a discerning, biblical, godly way about what fences we should put up in our lives. The fence isn't what makes us righteous and unrighteous. I, I get that. But there is value in, in thinking through how to apply the scriptures in everyday life. And you need to think about it. Don't judge other people by based on your answers, your questions, but at least think about it. At least think about it deeply. At least think about it prayerfully. At least think about it humbly. Fall on your knees before God and say, God, is there anything in my life I can't give up because I'm more committed to it than you? This is, this is the burden of my heart this week. Ultimately, again, it's not about the fences. It's funny, like it's a, it's a tension. It's a tension we have to walk through. To one hand say to you, put up fences. The other saying, it's not about the fences. And we're like, oh, which one is it? <laughs> I want to just gravitate to one or the other because that would be a whole lot easier. I get it's a whole lot easier, but it's not right. The, 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 the right spot is somewhere in the middle here as we, as a group of believers, seeking to live our lives devoted to God, seeking to know and obey the word, seeking to be different than the people around us, give humble, honest, open thought to what it means to live like Jesus in the worlds in which God has placed us. That's my call to you today. Will you bow your heads with me for a moment?